A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 31. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 10. The Cataract and the Desert, Part 1. At Aswan, one bids good-bye to Egypt and enters Nubia through the gates of the cataract, which is in truth no cataract but a succession of rapids extending over two-thirds of the distance between Elephantine and Philae. The Nile, diverted from its original course by some unrecorded catastrophe, the nature of which has given rise to much scientific conjecture, here spreads itself over a rocky basin bounded by sand slopes on the one side and by granite cliffs on the other. Studded with numberless islets, divided into numberless channels, foaming over sunken rocks, eddying among water-worn boulders, now shallow, now deep, now loitering, now hurrying, here sloping in the ribbed hollow of a tiny sand-drift, there circling above the vortex of a hidden whirlpool, the river, whether looked upon from the deck of the Dahabia or the heights along shore, is seen everywhere to be fighting its way through a labyrinth, the paths of which have never been mapped or sounded. These paths are everywhere difficult and everywhere dangerous, and to that labyrinth the Shelidi, or cataract Arab, alone possesses the key. At the time of the inundation, when all but the highest rocks are under water, and navigation is as easy here as elsewhere, the Shelidi's occupation is gone. But as the floods subside and travelers begin to reappear, his work commences. To haul Dahabias up those treacherous rapids by sheer stress of rope and muscle, to steer skillfully down again through channels bristling with rocks and boiling with foam, becomes now, for some five months of the year, his principal industry. It is hard work, but he gets well paid for it, and his profits are always on the increase. From forty to fifty Dahabias are annually taken up between November and March, and every year brings a greater influx of travelers. Meanwhile, accidents rarely happen, prices tend continually upwards, and the cataract Arabs make a little fortune by their singular monopoly. The scenery of the first cataract is like nothing else in the world except the scenery of the second. It is altogether new and strange and beautiful. It is incomprehensible that travelers should have written of it in general with so little admiration. They seem to have been impressed by the wildness of the waters, by the quaint forms of the rocks, by the desolation and grandeur of the landscape as a whole, but scarcely at all by its beauty, which is paramount. The Nile here widens to a lake. Of the islands, which it would be hardly an exaggeration to describe as some hundreds in number, no two are alike. Some are piled up like the rocks at the land's end in Cornwall, block upon block, column upon column, tower upon tower as if reared by the hand of man. Some are green with grass, some golden with slopes of drifted sand, some planted with rows of blossoming lupins purple and white. Others again are mere carns of loose blocks, with here and there a perilously balanced top boulder. On one a singular upright monolith like a menhir stands conspicuous as if placed there to commemorate a date or to point the way to Philae. Another mass rises out of the water, squared and buttressed, in the likeness of a fort. A third, humped and shining like the wet body of some amphibious beast, lifts what seems to be a horned head above the surface of the rapids. 
All these blocks and boulders and fantastic rocks are granite, some red, some purple, some black. Their forms are rounded by the friction of ages. Those nearest the brink reflect the sky like mirrors of burnished steel. Royal ovals and hieroglyphed inscriptions, fresh as of yesterday's cutting, start out here and there from those glittering surfaces with startling distinctness. A few of the larger islands are crowned with clumps of palms, and one, the loveliest of any, is completely embowered in gum trees and acacias, dome and date palms, and feathery tamarisks, all festooned together under a hanging canopy of yellow-blossomed creepers. On a brilliant Sunday morning, with a favorable wind, we entered on this fairy archipelago. Sailing steadily against the current, we glided away from Aswan, left Elephantine behind, and found ourselves at once in the midst of the islands. From this moment every turn of the tiller disclosed a fresh point of view, and we sat on deck, spectators of a moving panorama. The diversity of subjects was endless. The combinations of foam and color, of light and shadow, of foreground and distance, were continually changing. A boat, or a few figures alone, were wanting to complete the picturesqueness of the scene, but in all those channels and among all those islands we saw no sign of any living creature. Meanwhile the shake of the cataract, a flat-faced, fishy-eyed old Nubian, with his head tied up in a dingy yellow silk handkerchief, sat apart in solitary grandeur at the stern, smoking a long chibouk. Behind him squatted some five or six dusky strangers, and a new steersman, black as a negro, had charge of the helm. This new steersman was our pilot for Nubia. From Aswan to Wadi Halfa, and back again to Aswan, he alone was now held responsible for the safety of the Dahabiyah and all on board. At length the general stir among the crew warned us of the near neighborhood of the first rapid. Straight ahead, as if ranged along the dike of a weir, a chain of small islets barred the way, while the current, divided into three or four headlong torrents, came rushing down the slope and reunited at the bottom in one tumultuous race. That we should ever get the fillet up that hill of moving water seemed at first sight impossible. Still our steersman held on his course, making for the widest channel. Still the sheikh smoked imperturbably. Presently, without removing the pipe from his mouth, he delivered the one word, Row! forward. Instantly, evoked by his nod, the rocks swarmed with natives. Hidden till now in all sorts of unseen corners, they sprang out, shouting, gesticulating, laden with coils of rope, leaping into the thick of the rapids, splashing like water-dogs, bobbing like corks, and making as much show of energy as if they were going to haul us up Niagara. The thing was evidently a coup de théâtre, like the apparition of Clan Alpine's warriors in the Dona del Lago, with Bakshish in the background. The scene that followed was curious enough. Two ropes were carried from the Dahabia to the nearest island, and there made fast to the rocks. Two ropes from the island were also brought on board the Dahabia. A double file of men on deck, and another double file on shore, then ranged themselves along the ropes. The sheikh gave the signal, and, to a wild chanting accompaniment and a movement like a barbaric Sir Roger de Coverley dance, a system of double hauling began, by means of which the huge boat slowly and steadily ascended. We may have been a quarter of an hour going up the incline, though it seemed much longer. Meanwhile, as they warmed to their work, the men chanted louder and pulled harder, 
till the boat went in at last with a rush and swung over into a pool of comparatively smooth water. Having moored here for an hour's rest, we next repeated the performance against a still stronger current a little higher up. This time, however, a rope broke. Down went the haulers like a row of cards suddenly tipped over. Round swung the fillet, receiving the whole rush of the current on her beam. Luckily for us, the other rope held fast against the strain. Had it also broken, we must have been wrecked then and there ignominiously. End of section 31